Old Man Winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, Old Man Winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. Welcome in to... Welcome in to the Autzen Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Brain, Eric Scopel on the show as always. And today we are going to discuss basketball only on the podcast we tried to do this once a week and then breaking news hit put things on pause the teams both went on pause which kind of slowed things down and we're ramping this back up again as the season unfortunately comes to uh getting closer to an end but it's the most exciting time of the year for both teams uh they are in the hunt for an ncaa tournament bid the men have somewhat of an opportunity to compete for the conference championship. The women probably, whoa, sorry about that. The the women have probably a, a tougher chance. I don't know if they've been completely eliminated, but it's more unlikely that they it's, win. Yeah, they're not going to win. It's out. They're out of it. <clears throat> they're out of it. Okay. Um, let's start with the men, though. Um, kind of a disappointing performance Monday night. Uh, down in Southern California, they lose 72 to 58 in a game in which the Trojans hit three three pointers in the first, I don't know, two minutes of the game and opened up a 15 to nothing run. Oregon missed their first 12 shots from the field. Uh, uphill battle the rest of the way. The Ducks got it down to 10, a couple points in the second half, but just kind of ran out of gas, ran out of time. Uh, in that one. And, and Eric, it, it's very rare for an Oregon team to get blown out. We don't see it very often. And unfortunately, it popped up at probably the most least opportunistic time it, it could happen. Uh, that was a huge game and, and they laid a dud. Yeah, I mean, the, the winner of that game is is at least in the lead for the, the fewest losses in Pac-12 play. I mean, right now, USC's 13-3, and Oregon's now 9-4 and after the game. Um, that was a huge game. And, and the crazy thing here, and I know we can talk about this in a second, is how condensed the schedule is now for the men of, like, they're playing, like, a game basically every night through um, the, the following Sunday for, like, the next 10 or so days. They play almost every single day. So, um you're going to learn rather quickly the caliber of, of team and how they're ready to finish this season. Uh, I don't think there's any question about that. And I think you're right. It was disappointing to see the loss. I think that also comes off of a stretch where you were really, I mean, this is one of the funny things. If we'd recorded this podcast on Monday, which we initially planned on doing it, we'd be sitting here talking about how we're going to just rattle it, you know, rattled off five straight wins, how they looked really impressive doing it. You know, how some of the games were, were close, but they'd kind of found their legs. 
Instead, we're recording this um, a day, one day later, and we're kind of bemoaning what was a really disappointing loss. And Matt, did you think this was more USC is really good? Because USC does have some elite caliber players, right? I mean, we, we, we know um, about the upside and the potential of like a top overall draft pick for, for Evan Mobley. But like, what, what, did you, what do you take away from this game? Was this more USC or was this more Oregon maybe just not, not being on their games? Well, I, I do think from an Oregon perspective, they looked um, – uh, they did not have the energy. And Dan Altman brought that up a bunch of times post-game that they just did not play with an urgency uh, the first half, essentially. They were slow on both sides of the ball. And it looked like the sign of a team that was playing their third game in five days, which included – a travel day, you right. know, like, yes, Eugene to LA is not very long. It's a two hour flight at most, especially when, you know, the school gets a charter flight um, and they can go when they want from to a degree. Um, but you still have the travel aspect of it. And even when you just fly for just a short period of time, your body feels a little different for a little bit. And Throw in the fact that they're playing, you know, the third game in five days. You don't want to make excuses, but at the same time, that's kind of what it looked like. Like, hey, this is the third game in five days where we we probably got into LA late last night or late afternoon and had maybe a, a, a short walkthrough, uh, and it showed. And then on the other side, USC played well above their averages. They they are not a team that shoots sixty three percent. Uh, on three pointers. They are a team that shoots more like what they did in the second half, three of 10, uh, 30%. They finished the game 47.6% on threes. That's well above their average. I think that's 13 points, percentage points above their average. And, and look, the game plan going in was clear. Pack the paint for someone other than Evan Mobley to beat you. Because like you said, Eric, he's the potential number one draft pick. He's a guy that can dominate inside. He only had 11 points. He only shot seven attempts. The problem is, is your game plan said, okay, let's have them shoot threes. Let's force them to shoot jumpers. And senior Tajetti just went off six of 11 on threes, eight of 15 overall, 24 points. Uh, He had almost as many points as Oregon did in the first half by himself. And it was a deal in which they just, you ran, sometimes you run into this. You play the law of averages, and the team just shoots above the law of averages. And I think that's kind of what happened. Oregon didn't have the energy that they typically have. They didn't, you know, they they were lacking the juice, if you will. And then on the other side, they the game plan, the scouting report said make USA shoot threes because they're probably not going to shoot at a high clip, and they did. And it's just kind of a worst case scenario that plays out. For the first time, really, all season. Oregon is playing basically at full strength. And I say that just from a numbers perspective. I understand some of these guys are still roll, you know, kind of on numbers yep. restrictions, still getting comfortable. But like and Enfali Dante was, of course, supposed to be a big part of this team. He's not going to play all season from here on out because of the knee. But like what's your you, we've now seen, I think it's just been two games because Eric Williams has been in and out of the lineup with the knee injury. You had Duarte for a minute out. Obviously, Will Richardson was out. I mean, every, every it seems like every core guy has missed at least a game or two here or there in the last couple of months. But like what, what are you seeing now that this group is about 
has basically all of its parts. You know, obviously they lost this game to USC. They beat Utah in a really, really close game um, on Saturday. Um, they now have five games to play. And like we said, about, about, the, about, about 10 or 12 days. Kind of what, what's the outlook with this group right now? Are, are you liking what you're seeing now that they kind of have all their, their pieces? And, I, you know, maybe we'll talk more about this in a moment. But if, like, I've been really impressed with at least the limited offerings from Frank Kepnang every time he's out there. What, what's kind of improved or changed? Because I think it's been a while since on a podcast we've sat and, and really assessed the roster. And I think the last time I did it, it was probably way back when, when they were without uh, Will Richardson and maybe Eric Williams or Chris Duarte were, were kind of in and out of the lineup. Kind of what's your sense now that everything is kind of as close to full strength as it can be right now? Yeah, well, I, I think this feels a lot like the Sweet 16 run from a couple of years ago where Oregon needed to put Francis Socorro into the starting lineup and just accept the fact that he's going to have some deficiencies because of his youth and lack of experience. And Oregon was able to, you know, to ride that momentum behind Okoro all the way to Pac-12 tournament championship. And then they made the sweet 16 and he was a big part of that. And I think we're seeing similar signs with Frank Kepnog, uh, Oregon's six foot 11 freshman center. Um, a guy that, like he played 16 minutes against USC. He was just one shot. He had just, he didn't have any rebounds in the game, but he did have two blocks. He had a steal. Um, he didn't have any turnovers in that game. And, and, and then while you look at that and think his stat line wasn't all that impressive, it really felt like when he was on the floor and was active, just everything about Oregon was different a little bit and from a positive standpoint. And I, I think you really have to explore the idea of putting him into the starting lineup. Or if you don't put him in the starting lineup, playing him more than 20 minutes a game. Because Chandler Lawson, while solid, is not a physical power forward center type guy. And his rebounding is not at a level that you you expect it to be. Um, he's not a guy that's going to score a lot of points for you. He's a secondary scorer. Um, I just think, you know, Lawson knows the defense, though. He knows, you know, he's a, he's a, a, a solid rebounder. He's not an elite rebounder, but he's a solid defender. He's probably not an elite defender. He's not a rim protector. I, I just think it's time that we maybe see what Frank can do a little bit with an expanded role um, because – when he was out there against USC and when he's been out there a little bit before that, it, it just feels different with him out there. He's a physical presence. He's that energy guy that Altman talks about uh, lacking against the USC game. You know, he was one of the few guys in that game that had the energy throughout the game. I and mean, he was on the bench at, at one point. I noticed that the only one too, doing the, you know, defense clap, clap, defense clap, clap, trying to get his team, you know, juiced a little bit, you know, to make a run and try to complete a comeback. And I, I just think I'd like to see what he can do with a little bit more playing time. He's not a guy that you have to run the offense through. Um, he gives you some more versatility. and doesn't, It doesn't require Eugene Amarui to guard your centers. I mean, he was 3 of 10 in that game against USC. Really poor shooting performance uh, from him. And you can match Eugene Amarui up with a power forward, which is more of a traditional matchup for him, in which I think he could really excel at instead of playing center. So it's going to be interesting. They have, like you mentioned it, 
Monday was the start of a, of a stretch where they're playing six games over a 14-day period. They play at Stanford uh, Thursday afternoon or Thursday evening on the 25th. And then Saturday, they go to Berkeley to play the Cal. And then they've had two more games added, both in Eugene. Monday, March 1st against Arizona. Wednesday, March 3rd against UCLA. And then they had the regular season finale regularly scheduled for Saturday, March 6th, bumped over to March 7th, Sunday. So there's going to be – Dana almost said postgame. There's not going to be a lot of practice in the next two weeks. And he said, unfortunately, we need practice. There's going to be a lot of games, and it's going to be on this team to kind of figure out how to develop, how to continue to grow over a 14-, 13-day stretch now where they play five games and very little practice time. You just look at the data, though, back to Frank for a second here. 13 shot blocks in just over 100 minutes of playing time. There's not a player on this team who is at anywhere near as effective protecting the room from a shot block perspective. Not as even that. close. Not even close. I mean, not even Dante. No, I mean, and Volley Dante, actually, it's really, okay, this is kind of cool from a certain perspective. Obviously not cool because Dante's not playing, but they both have played exactly 106 minutes now, Dante and Kepnong. Obviously, Dante's not playing anymore. Kepnong has 13 shot blocks. Uh, Dante has seven during that time. So Dante had about twice as many, or sorry, half as many um, while he was playing as what Kepnong has done now. Duarte has the most blocks on the team at 16. That's three more than Kepnong in about 464 more minutes. So... I mean, it's not even close. You talk about Chandler Lawson. There's a guy who's played tw- twice as many games, about three and a half as times as many minutes, and he's only blocked eight shots as opposed to 13. So I, I agree. There, there is something different when he's on the court, and it's not entirely defensively. I mean, obviously, offensively, he doesn't do a lot, but when he's just around the rim hitting the offensive glass, um, that's something that I think I've noticed that they, that they kind of lack when he's not there. It's not to say like Eugene Amaruri can't clean some stuff up or even like LJ Figueroa or – or Chris Duarte or any of these guys are incapable of like hitting the glass, but he's just so much bigger and more physical. And when the ball hits off the front rim sometimes and he's right around it, it becomes a tip dunk and you don't see that necessarily out of Chandler loss. And so I am with you. I'm really, I think he's a really intriguing guy. I mean, I know it's small sample size, but you don't frequently see somebody shoot close to 70% from the field, you know, block a shot, you know, every six or seven minutes of, of playing time. Um, rebound the ball effect as you know I mean it's not a huge number of rebounds but even the number of rebounds he gets per minute is is fairly impressive so um, I, I, I'll be curious to see kind of how you impact his role and the, can, can he be like you said the Francis Socorro where he starts and maybe only plays 20-24 minutes right. per game but that changes the way everything starts and that changes kind of the dynamic of things maybe that's his role or maybe it's coming off the bench in his current role and then they like starting a little bit smaller but he is clearly their only big rim protector um, all right, let's talk a little bit big picture here. Um, first, let's just look at you mentioned that what's going on, what they have ahead on the schedule here. What do they need to get done? And then let's just kind of combine this into a little bit of NCAA tournament seeding talk. I, I know I, I was kind of surprised, I guess, to see them hovering in that like eight, seven to 10 range. I think by most of the bracketologists, kind of have them around there. That seems kind of. I don't know. I don't know if that seems very indicative of this team. I know that the hard part is they have these two losses right in the middle of the COVID outbreak against Oregon State and Washington State. And those are bad losses. Both those came at home. But you kind of remove those and you look at their losses the rest of the seasons. Like they lost to Missouri, who's a decent SEC team. I haven't followed exactly where they fall in their heart. 14 and 6 in the top 50 of the Ken Palm rankings. So that's a, that's a respectable loss. You lose to yeah. Colorado. 
also a respectable loss. And then you lose to USC. And the other, again, the other two losses, you have to at least kind of take a, a closer look at it and say, well, Oregon State and Washington State, Oregon didn't have close to it, really their whole offerings of guys. And Washington State game was a game where I really think if you'd played Washington on Thursday and Washington State on Saturday, Oregon probably wins both of those games. But, hey, you can't control everything. And I just look at this team and think like they, they feel on paper a lot better than that range, but that's where the kind of projections are right now is they're going to be kind of a, they're, they're maybe they're going to be a favorite in, in one of their, in, in their first round game, but they are probably going to be an underdog or a pretty big underdog the next round. Um, can they change that? How much can they change that? And, and what do they need to do before they get into Pac-12 tournament plays to kind of ensure that they're, I think it's, it feels like they're safely in, but I guess what do they need to avoid being, you know, feeling like they're on the bubble and what, what could they do? Like what, what, how high could you see them reaching if they just finish really strong? Yeah. I feel like the only way that they don't make the tournament now is if they lose to Cal on the road, if they lose to Oregon state on the road, and then they go Owen one in the PAC 12 tournament. Like okay. as long as they, they beat both of those two teams, Oregon state and Cal, they can lose the other games at Stanford, at home against UCLA, at home against Arizona, and and they're in. Um, now, they would probably be like in the play-in round, which would not be ideal. Um, but if they can find a way in the next five games, or let's just say, let's, let's count the Pac-12 tournament opening round game, okay? So they have six games left. They've got Stanford on Thursday, Cal on Saturday, UCLA or Arizona on Monday, UCLA on Wednesday. Oregon State is the fifth game next Sunday. And then they have the opening round of the Pac-12 tournament for six. If they go four and two, they're safely in. If they go like three and three, they're probably going to be in a situation where they're facing a potential play-in game to get into the NCAA tournament. If they go five and one, I, I look at this and think they're not only are they safely in, they're probably going to be a team that's going to be favored in that opening round of the NCAA tournament. If they go six and zero, oh, now we're talking kind of like that eight, nine range. Um, and I think if, if they run the table, I think best case scenario for them they somehow find themselves in like a seven, six, maybe very, very slim chance of getting that five. Cause that USC game was so pivotal for them because yep. it was a huge net ranking game. Uh, it, it was a top 20 performance there. I think they're fourth Trojans now are 14th in the country um, with the win. It, that really, if they, they really needed that game to have us have a chance to get a five or a four or a four, now it really feels like anything above, you know, four or better is really just super optimistic and not going to happen. And so it feels like five is kind of about their ceiling and it's going to be a best case scenario. And, and with a five, it's, Hey, you, you, you play that tough 12 seed team, but if you win, you know, you're playing a four seed, that's you're equal essentially. And, you know, you can, you can win that game and get into the sweet 16 again. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's going to come down. It's going to be nitty gritty. They're going to have, I, I think Oregon, this is a year in which they have a huge sliding scale for where they could go in the tournament. They could be a five. They could be a 12. That's playing in the playing game. Yeah, it really feels that way. It's really weird. It's really, I, I, I say that because 
you followed this a lot more closely than I have, but I mean, you just look at the way they've performed since January 1st, and there's not a whole lot to be disappointed by aside from two games in there. And again, I've said it already, but like those games could be really, really impactful. And it kind of stinks because it feels like Oregon was so far off full strength. And, you know, you look at it, they've got games postponed all around those too against Oregon State and Washington State. And for those games to potentially, you know, slide the scales in a negative direction significantly, that really stinks because I think we're starting to see the team here that, that Oregon can be in this little run of winning five games. And I know in that run of winning five, like Colorado's been competitive and, and strong at times this season. Um, Arizona has had some moments, but like, so like you're not looking at Arizona state has been way worse than expected based on record. Um, you can, you can tell me if that's all COVID or not, but like, I just look at that and think, you know, it's that five game win streak. You feel really good about it, but maybe maybe it doesn't move the needle as much because really only the wins over Arizona and Colorado matter very much. But um, I I don't know. I, I look at this team and think that this five day, this five game stretch is going to teach us so much about what they can be and how they can handle what's basically. I mean, let's be real. They're basically going to be playing tournament style of back to back games here for the next all the way through the NCAA tournament. I mean, yeah. these next two weeks plus the Pac twelve tournament into the NCAA tournament, you do worry a little bit about, like, are they going to run out of legs a little bit? And as you said, this last week when they played Thursday, Saturday, Monday, that's three games in, like, what, five days. They might have run out of gas a little bit there, too. So you just hope that's not a precursor for what they've got ahead of them because this isn't easy. I mean, this is, un- this is unusual. This is, this is, like, basically an NBA style of schedule where you don't have basically any rest. You've got maybe a game or, or a day or two in between every game. Um, the whole way through here really it's one it's one it's one day off between every game until you get to that Oregon State game where you've got a couple of days but I mean you've literally got Thursday Saturday Saturday Monday Monday Wednesday here for the next four games I mean that's not easy at all and you kind of wonder what that's going to do how this team can handle that sort of sort of wear and tear because again you, you typically are playing two games per week now you're playing two games and then you with with one day in between I mean it's it's not quite apples to oranges yeah, Dana almost said post game that this was like, un, you know, uh, this was not a uh, familiar territory for the coaching staff and for players. And it was, you know, he pointed out how it was a situation where it was a lot like the NBA, where they're going to have to really manage things and do things they've never done before. And I think I said to you and, and Kevin Wade, our, our co worker, in private when the schedule was adjusted last night or yesterday afternoon. Oregon is either going to be one of the hottest teams in college basketball going into the NCAA tournament because they're going to play potentially like, let's say if they fall out of the top four in the Pac-12 seedings, they now all of a sudden have to play, excuse me, now five, because I guess the the first five teams get a bye. Um, They now all of a sudden have to play four games in Vegas if they win it all. So they could play potentially – 10 games in 21 days going into the NCAA tournament, Oregon is either going to be the hottest team in college basketball, or this is going to crash and burn. And they are going to be dead tired by the time they get to to the NCAA tournament and have basically no legs and be extremely tired and lack any kind of juice. And it's going to be a grind to win a game in the NCAA tournament. I, I, I truly think that it's going to go one of those two directions. They will be either on fire going into March Madness and everyone's talking up this team that's won, let's say, like 
So they've got five games left in the regular season. Going into the Pac-12 tournament, they're a team that's like nine and two over the last eleven games, or ten and one over the last eleven games, right. and they're on. They're just straight on fire going into the Pac-12 tournament. Everyone's talking about them as the team that's going to be the you know the wild card team that could make it to the Final Four, or they're going to go into the Pac-12 tournament with like a, a five and six or a four and seven record. And everyone's like, they might not even make the tournament if they don't win a game. It's a truly bizarre season for a lot of reasons. What I do, what I don't want to have happen, what I would hate to have happen, is Oregon gets really hot during this, this stretch here. They prove how capable they are. And then they, they run out of legs, but they don't run out of legs in Las Vegas. They run out of legs in the NCAA tournament. And you see all the potential, but you go, gosh, if only they could have had a little bit more break in there somewhere that would have helped because they just kind of run out of gas and, and don't have much left. I think that would be worst case just to see the upside and potential, which I think we are starting to see here in, in, in this kind of last couple of games here, but to see it taken away because they just can't man, you know, to continue it. Cause this is a lot to ask. This is going to be a tough, tough three to four weeks here. Well, what's that joke that like Oregon can just never have anything nice, whether it's like <laughs> yeah. football, basketball, women's basketball, yeah. softball, like they can just never have anything nice. And this was a year going in where you're like, okay, for the first time in a long time, Oregon loses their best player in Peyton Pritchard, but they bring back so much uh, other pieces from last year's PAC 12 championship team. And they've got so many newcomers that, fit perfectly this is the year where the transition from uh losing a great player to you know replacing him is going to be difficult but it can seamlessly happen and they're just going to continue to ascend at the beginning of the year and then what happens oh your most important player will richardson gets hurt and is out for the you know two-thirds of the season literally two days before the year starts and then what else happens oh yeah uh and follow dante you're truly you're one like back to the basket guy at that point in the, t- in the season uh, on the roster, he gets lost for the year, seven or eight games into the, into the season. And now you have to retool yourself and then you go through COVID and then you lose a couple guys because of injury. And then uh, another COVID thing hits and it's like, Oregon could just never get anything nice. And, and, and that's the one thing I think as duck fans are like, God damn it. Like we, we were supposed to have, this was supposed to be our year. And then, everything just gets messed up and now it's what what's this team's identity going to be like what are they going to what are they going to play like going into the tournament are they hot was that five game winning streak a mirage or is that closer to the to what they should be who who are we watching what is this team going to be like and then, you know to, to wrap up the men's side here uh i still until i see it happen you don't doubt dana altman you don't doubt this coaching staff and you don't doubt the history that the program always kind of figures it out. And, you know, typically I don't have the data in front of me, but typically when Oregon does get blown out, like they did uh, Monday night, they traditionally come back and bounce back pretty well. Um, one, one, it, it's not like a win one, lose one, win one, lose two, win two, lose one type of a deal. It's, you know, they may lose, the following game, but once they start winning, it's like things get figured out and they go on a good run. And you just hope that that happens again for the ducks going into the home stretch of this season. Uh, I'm still on record. Oregon will finish in the top three in the Pac-12 standings, probably top two. I'm still on record. I I think this team has a chance to win the league and it wouldn't surprise me if they don't, if they do USC has to play UCLA USC has to go to Colorado 
the Bruins, they play Oregon. They have to go to Colorado. They can get some help. It's going to be tough, but they can get some help. Championship is still on the table. And I still think I'm, I still think Oregon wins in Vegas. I think they, they still find a way to win it all. We'll see if I change my tune after Thursday at Stanford, but I still think this team has time to make the jump, to make the room and make the improvements to, to get themselves that automatic bid to the NCAA tournament. Okay. The women's side now, Eric, um, this is a team that boy, it, it's been up and down all year. Uh, they are 13 and six on the year. They are 10 and six in conference play. I can't remember the last time that they lost. How many years did it take them to rack up six conference losses uh, you know, oh, that, prior to this season? Yeah, you'd have to go all the way. Well, I mean, are you talking combined or just in one season? In one season, you have to go back to Sabrina Nescu's freshman year. Combined, you'd have to add up both the 2019-20 and 2018-19 years because they, they lost <laughs> two and three games those years. Actually, you have to combine three seasons to do it. So, yeah, yeah this is kind of unusual for them to be where they're at right now. They had a three-game losing streak, which started February 8th at home against Arizona. They lost. They were blown out, 79-59. to A uh, game against California was postponed, and then they played Stanford real tough Monday night in Eugene. They lost 63-61, and you could argue they probably should have won that game, and they just didn't make yeah. the plays down the stretch. Uh, and then Friday, February 19th, they went to UCLA. Huge game, and – much like the men last night, they were they were destroyed, eighty three to fifty six, to complete that three game losing streak. Long time since Oregon lost three straight on the women's side, and luckily for the Ducks, uh, they played USC and they got a big win, seventy two to forty eight, to give us uh, this game where they go on Sunday against Oregon State to round out the year. I, I get a regular season schedule, like at least, Eric what do you make of this team right now? Like three straight and then they blow out a USC team. Is it just a team that's just, they aren't on par with the other three elite teams in the league, Arizona, Stanford, and UCLA, but they're considerably better than everybody else. Or is this a team that you think is closer to the top three teams in the league? Well, I think it's pretty clear they're better than everybody else by a decent margin. We'll learn more about Oregon state. Oregon state's been playing really well recently. And I know Oregon, one in Corvallis by about 20 points back in early December, but these teams look a lot different. Um, so that game maybe will, will tell a different, sing a different tune because right now I'm like, currently Oregon is 10 and 0 with about a win margin of over 20 points per game against everybody that's not Arizona, Stanford, and UCLA. But they're 0 and 6 with three pretty ugly losses um, in those, to those teams. I mean, like, I mean, not only. You know, I mean, this is the thing that's kind of hard to answer this question, Matt, because it's like, which Oregon are we talking about? Are we talking about the Oregon that played Stanford twice, really, really close, lost by two, lost by six? Those are the two closest games anyone's played Stanford in, in defeat so far. Are we talking about the team that should have beaten UCLA in early January, lost by two points, had a couple of UCLA games in the Oregon, uh, sorry, the Stanford games at home, very similar games. Oregon loses by two points both times. They have two tries at the end of the game. They just need to score a basket to force overtime, hit a three to win. They can't even really get a good look up either time. Those games are very similar. But then you also have these games, the two games against Arizona, clearly that matchup, not favorable. We lost both games by 16 or more. And then this recent game against UCLA, I think was the most kind of confounding one and probably the most frustrating one because you look at it and go, like I said a second ago, Oregon really should have probably beaten the Bruins at home, but they lose. 
Oregon probably could have beaten the Cardinal a couple of days earlier, but they lose. And they come into this game with UCLA, a team, again, that they've played well, um, having played well against Stanford a couple of days earlier, and then they lose by 27 points, which is the most lopsided loss in about half a decade. Um, so it's kind of hard to know exactly what you want to make of them. I will say this. It's pretty clear right now that they're not night in, night out, capable of competing with the top three teams in the conference. But it's pretty clear to me that you go back and look at the way they performed against the rest of the Pac-12, and it's kind of hard to argue that they're not head, you know, significantly better. I mean, you go through this, and it's like, I know it's a long time ago, but they beat Colorado by 20 points early in the season. They beat Utah by 40. They beat Oregon State by 20. They beat, they've beaten Washington now both times about 25. Washington State's played them close, but Oregon won both games. USC, they beat by about 25 twice. They beat, shoot, they beat Cal by 60. Um, you know, and that kind of rounds up the wins. So they, they, when they've played these lesser teams, they've just completely dominated. But the reality has been is that they've had a lot of games postponed against those lesser teams. And so I think that's part of the thing that's kind of like strange to look at with the schedule is they've lost to six of the, they've lost six games. They've lost all, every time they've played these premier teams, they haven't been good enough. But they haven't really had a lot of games around the margins to just kind of prove what they are. So it's like, I think you're, you're kind of surprised they won by 24 points. And it's like, well, the reality is they, the games they would have probably dominated against Utah, Colorado, Arizona State, and Cal in the last month all got postponed. So you didn't have a chance to really see what they look like because otherwise the, the games they were playing were literally against Arizona, Stanford, and UCLA, who were like some of the best teams in the country. So I, I guess long answer here, but like my, my perspective is that clearly they're better than teams 5 through 12 in the conference. I think it's very clear they're the fourth best team in this conference. Um, what I think is unclear is if we were to get to a semifinal or a final game against one of these teams, I guess it would have to probably be a semifinal unless there's an upset, but if they were to get to one of these games, could they actually knock off Arizona, Stanford, or UCLA in the Pac-12 tournament when it matters? And um, that right there to me is probably the most important element of all of this is because I think you get to the NCAA tournament and think, I feel pretty good about them knocking off Let's say they're, I mean, they're still supposed to be like a three or a four seed. Let's say they're a four seed. I feel pretty good about them probably winning their first couple of games. But boy, when they face a one or a two seed in a sweet 16 setting, or maybe even if they're fa facing a three to four or a five seed in the second round, I don't know exactly where they're at because they've just struggled so much against the good teams from a night in, night out basis that I don't have a lot of confidence in their ability to go take care of business. I was just going to say like what's been the difference like what is it holding Oregon back in these games against the better teams in the conference because you look at Arizona the first the first meeting um in this game they were you know they lost 57 41 it was truly just awful basketball for the most part for Oregon um, they for the played whole part, for the whole part. It was terrible. <laughs> yeah. They played UCLA well in Eugene. They lost 73, 71, uh, in Stanford, they hung with them for three quarters and then kind of got run out in the fourth and they lost 70 to 63. And then you go down later on in the schedule and they play Arizona. Like we mentioned, they got blown out by 20 at home, just utter destruction. Stanford, again, they play them tight. They lose by two and then utter destruction from UCLA. It, it's, it's like, it's, it, it's 
everything. It feels like every game against these big teams, you have close games, you have blowouts, you have games where they hung hung with the team for three quarters and then just run out of gas. Like, is it just the youth and inexperience? Or is there something else with this team that's holding them back from you know truly being with the other three teams in the conference? So I don't think it's talent. Um, I do think, I mean, there's a lot, I think, going on here. Um, specifically to the games that are blown out, I, I think there is a significant athleticism, aggression, advantage that Arizona and UCLA have over Oregon. And I think UCLA clearly learned from watching how Arizona played Oregon that the key here is you can go a little bit smaller, but if you can spread the court offensively, find some shooting, which is what Arizona was able to do. Kate Reese hit a bunch of threes and Eugene that for, in the second game, and that really kind of flipped everything in Arizona's favor. Um, UCLA game, same thing. They came out and hit six threes in the first quarter. Ended up, I think they only ended up making 12, which is uh, 12 is a decent number. But, I mean, for six in the first quarter to hit six the rest of the game is not quite the same thing. But, like, you spread the court on them, and if you can hit the shots, you're going to be successful. And then on defense, you just kind of you get up in them. And I think Oregon has a hard time when a defense just really gets physical with them and, and the length, the length is key here. And the way Oregon got out rebounded by UCLA on Friday was just really, really disappointing. I think it was 47 to 25, 18 offensive rebounds, like 25 points on second chance points. I and mean, that's basically the difference in the game. Obviously Oregon's not going to win that game. If they rebound slightly better, they would have needed to have rebounded a heck of a lot better, but you know, the difference in that game was in part just the three point shooting and the rebounding. So there's that. And then from just like a – so, like, I think part of it's matchup related. I think Stanford matches up more – Stanford and Oregon have similar rosters, more similar team makeups. Um, I mean, I think Stanford's probably a little bit more athletic at guard, a little bit more long on the perimeter, but similar otherwise. So, like, I think that's a more favorable matchup. So some of it's matchups. I think UCLA and Arizona are, are tougher matchups for Oregon just from how they play. I think – from a continuity perspective, this whole season has been completely out of whack. Just like, just like we talked about with the men, kind of similar. Um, basically, before the season gets going, one of your best players in Sedona Prince gets hurt. She misses a ton of time. She's in and out of the lineup. She's now back, but not really playing more than 15, 20 minutes per game. So it's like you don't know exactly what you got from her. She'll have moments of looking great. And then other moments, she's, I mean, she's a really up and down player. It's like either she has a fourth quarter like she did against. USC where she scores uh, like 11 points over the course of like eight minutes and you're really impressed and like, wow, she can really do some stuff or she's completely quiet. And when she's quiet, she's not good enough defensively to really make up for it. So she's kind of a, it's kind of, it's an interesting push pull with her. Um, You've had the COVID stuff, which has kept Taylor Chavez out of the lineup. I think she's somebody you want to have on the court more frequently. She's only, she's missed about half a dozen games. Um, The COVID thing in general has made it, so that the team is basically practicing separately. So they just haven't had been able to really develop that continuity and cohesion in practice. And then you've had kind of subtly injuries with Aaron Boley and, and Niara Sabali, who are arguably your two best players that have kind of limited them a little bit. And you'll see them have really good stretches and then other stretches where they're not very good. And so that plays into it. And, but I just think the bigger thing, Matt, and this is a lot of things that I've run through a bunch here for why they're not playing well. I just think the other big part is you came into the season with, with, kind of uh, uncertain for who kind of the alpha mentality, the alpha dog would be on this team. Who'd kind of lead this team. And we're now deep, deep into the season. One game left in regular season play. I still don't really have a clear idea of who like their alpha player is. Like I think Niara Sabali is probably your best player night to night. She's their most consistent. 
but she has not really shown she can really just completely take a game over against a better team. I think on the perimeter, the frustrating thing has been is it's like Taylor Mikesell was really ice cold from three for a while. She started to kind of heat back up, but how reliable is she? Um, can and can some of these freshmen be consistent? Because Tahina Pow Pow and Sydney Parrish have both had games where they've looked like maybe the team's best player. Uh, Parrish was really great against USC. She had 17 points. But then they've had other games where they just haven't been very good. So, I mean, there's just no consistency. There's no, they don't, they really lack anybody like a, you know, any of those big three. If they could have just had Sabrina, Satu, or Ruthie, just anybody who's 90% of that on this year's team who's just like a steady and consistent force, then they'd be a lot different. But I just think you go into every game not sure who kind of is going to be your, your go-to player. And that becomes difficult, especially when you have a team so talented where I think a lot of the players think, Hey, I can be that type of player. And yet maybe they're not best suited for that role. So I, I think there's a lot going on from a psychological perspective with this team too. Let's get past the civil war. Excuse me. Uh, let's get past Careful. the Oregon state game. Yeah. Uh, they win. Let's just assume they win that 14 to six overall record, 11 and six conference record two win, two game winning streak. Kind of what do you feel like is the ceiling of this team going into the PAC 12 tournament from a big picture standpoint? Can they win? The, can they win the tournament? Can they can? And, and what, what are their prospects in the NCAA tournament? You feel like what are reasonable expectations? Because look, at the beginning of the year, we were talking about how this team was capable. They had the talent to win to win the league again. It was going to be tough, but they could do it. And that was probably a little op- too optimistic. That was probably not respecting the fact that it's not a normal off season and they right. had to replace three WNBA players, a legit senior in Mignon Moore, um, very difficult to do that. What what's kind of a fair expectation for this team? You feel like going into postseason tournament play, Pac-12, and then NCAA because they're in both. Yeah, they're going to be in both. Now, I I look at this and say until we see them, like I, I don't have a lot of confidence, like I said earlier, of them beating Stanford or UCLA or Arizona just because those games have not gone well thus far. So like I those games, I just I don't know. I don't. I have I have a hard time seeing this team make a run in the NCAA tournament unless they prove in the Pac-12 tournament that they can beat one of those teams. That's where I start. Um, Pac-12 tournament, like I just go in thinking, I expect they're going to beat the teams they're supposed to because that's what they've done. But I don't really see them beating Stanford or it's probably going to be Stanford. Yeah, Stanford's going to be the one seed. They've already wrapped up the conference championship. I don't see them beating Stanford in the conference semifinals, assuming they get past whoever they play in the quarterfinals. Um, They could. Like I said, Stanford of the three teams is probably the mat- team that matched up the best. They haven't been blown out yet by the Cardinal. Lost by two, lost by seven. Um, could they sneak in there and win that game? My confidence isn't high enough just because they haven't done it yet. And the thing with this team that's interesting is their net ranking is still seventh nationally, despite all this up and down nature. It's just because they haven't had a bad loss all season. And some of the wins they've had have been pretty solid. UC Davis is a non-conference game they scheduled. That was a smart game to schedule because – it ended up being a pretty darn good team. Um, and then you look at the rest of the conference, there's some solid teams that they've beaten. They've taken care of business against everybody else. So they're going to be a decent seed in the, in the NCAA tournament. But my feeling is still the same thing I said earlier of like, I'll feel good about them winning. Let's say they're a four seed. I feel good about them beating 
whatever 13 seed you put in front of them. And I probably feel pretty decent about them beating whatever five seed you put in front of them. But when you get that next round and they're against a one seed, I, I just don't see them doing it. They haven't proven they can win. Like, I, are they capable? Sure. Could they make life miserable for a South Carolina, Stanford, UConn, Texas A&M, NC State, one of those kind of teams? Sure. That's not out of their own possibility. But I just don't. We haven't seen it yet. So, like, I look at this team and think they're going to probably win the games that they should, and they're probably going to lose the games that they should just because that's all we've seen from them so far this year. And I'm at this point, I was pretty optimistic going into that stretch of Arizona, Stanford, UCLA of thinking they're going to get at least one win from that three on the, on the second half of this, the back end of this. Two of them are at home. They're, they're going to win one of these games. The fact that they didn't do it, I'm not overly confident in their ability to go out and take care of business going forward against these teams the next time around. Maybe they will. Maybe we'll be surprised. But I just think you have to go in thinking they'll beat the teams they're supposed to, probably lose the teams they're supposed to. It's going to be an interesting finish for both the women and also the men's team. Let's end it here, Eric. What is like the major storyline between the Oregon State game, the Pac-12 tournament, and the NCAA tournament? Like, what What's the thing for you that you're really wanting to just figure out, whether it's for next year or to cap off this year? Or like, what's just that one question you're really curious to find the answer for? I think I want to see what this team can do from a three-point shooting perspective consistently. Um, We talked so much about this team offensively being able to shoot their way, you know, in and out of games. And the reality is this has not been a team that scored well at all since January 1st, really. Um, They scored 100 points against California in their game since 41, 58, 69, 63, 59, 61, 56, 72. Just haven't been as prolific offensively um, from a three-point shooting perspective. I probably would say the other thing offensively, I'll give a couple offense, a couple defense. Other thing offensively is I want to see who the alpha becomes. Um, I mentioned earlier, they just don't have that. They haven't had a player score. This is kind of a wild stat I looked up yesterday. They haven't had a player score 20 or more points in a game since December 21st. Um, or sorry, December 19th against Washington. They haven't had a player get to 20 points. And that's kind of unbelievable if you think about it when you're at least winning some of these games. Just not have somebody have a big night and go for 20 points. The lack of that has been pretty surprising to me. Um, I'd like to see if someone can step into that role. Someone can have a couple big scoring nights. That's kind of what they might need to get over the hump against one of these teams too. And then defensively, it's, it's can they match up with the athleticism on the glass? Um, can they rebound? Def- can they get defensive rebounds? Can they stop opposing teams from just dominating on the offensive glass? Because they haven't been able to do that thus far. And so, yeah, I think three-point shooting, kind of that who's your number one offensive player, and then can you rebound more effectively are probably the three things that step up to me. Of like, Because I think the rest of the pieces are there in, in chunks. Like the consistency is just not there. But like you see at times like, hey, they get the ball down to Niara Sabali or Sedona Prince consistently on the block, and that seems to work. They have stretches where that's really impactful. But yet the opposing offense or the opposing defense, I think, gets to a place at times where it's like, I can double team down there because this team just can't hit the three ball as crazy as that sounds given what Oregon has been shooting. So, um, and then you'll see at times where defensively they get really um, active and aggressive in the passing lanes. They force a lot of turnovers, they get a lot of steals, but then they'll give up and they'll defend really hard. And then they'll give up that 
28 foot three point shot that goes in or it hits the front end and then it's rebounded and it sets up another, you know, a long, another long three point shot that goes in. So it's sort of just the consistency part on both sides of the court. But I think particularly they got to find a way to shoot the three ball. They got to kind of figure out if they have a, a good two offensive player and then find a way to, to get on that defensive glass. It's going to do it for us here on the Odds and Audibles podcast, previewing, looking ahead for Oregon men and women's basketball. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this show. We'll do it again next week. We promise we'll also have a mailbag coming out later this week. We'll also do a Friday show as well. So until we talk to you then, you've been listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast. Talk to you later, folks. Grab your VIP pass. We're delving into the secretive world of Formula One. Behind the scenes with two of the sport's biggest names, Mercedes and Williams. This is not coal mining, this is Formula One motor racing. As they build their new cars. We want to be so much further ahead. We are in permanent racing mode. And face shocking headlines. Here's Lewis Hamilton moving away from Mercedes. I'm Joseph Fiennes and this is F1, back at base. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.